Thank you for downloading the latest CND podcast. Is pharmacy facing an education crisis? This podcast is funded by Activis, the generic supplier who are proud to manufacture in the UK. Good afternoon and welcome to this CND webinar sponsored by Activis. I'm James Waldron, news editor of CND, and I'm here with my co-chair, CND reporter Beth Kennedy, and a great panel of speakers for today's topic on the future of pharmacy education. First off, I'll just ask them to introduce themselves. So, uh, Damien, if we can start with you. Sure. Hello, my name is uh, Damien Day and I'm Head of Education at the General uh, Pharmaceutical Council. My name is Nomal Ahmed and I'm Pharmacist Managing Director. Uh, we run a pre-registration training programme nationally. I also sit on the RPS Pre-Reg Advisory Board. Hi, I'm Jay um, and I'm a member of Team Pre-Reg, basically designed to provide extra resources to the Pre-Reg student throughout the year. Hi, my name's Owen. I've um, just graduated from the University of Hertfordshire and I'm currently doing my pre-reg training year this year. Great, thanks guys. And of course the fifth panellist is you, the listener, and we'd like to hear your views too. If you want to share a perspective or ask our panellists a question, please email them to beth.kennedy at ubm.com and we will bring in as many of these as possible at rele- relevant points as the debate progresses. And if you're on Twitter, you can also use the hashtag farmexamfail to join in. And so that those of you who can't be here today can still contribute to the debate, We'll also be sharing with you the results of some pre-webinar reader polls, which will last, and the whole debate will last an hour, and then we'll be wrapping up at 5pm. So that's housekeeping out of the way, now let's get started. It seems like pharmacy education has never been out of the headlines in recent months. June's pre-registration exam saw a pass rate of 74%, the lowest for six years, and it prompted some soul-searching across the sector about whether education is in crisis. So far, pre-reg tutors, lenient university application processes, and the quality of students themselves have all come under fire. Over the next hour, we're going to examine all of these areas, but first I'd like to turn to Zohib. So as as a current pre-registration student, do you personally feel concerned about the quality of pharmacy education? To be honest, there is a big concern amongst all pre-reg students with regards to the disparity between hospital training and community training. Now, even now where we're currently trying to recruit for a new pre-reg to replace myself for next year, we're finding that a lot of the top applicants are 100% focused on getting a hospital training year because they feel it will better equip them to pass their training exam and so in essence we're, I don't know, I feel like we're suffering with like a brain drain as such where the top pharmacy graduates are running into hospitals and avoiding community altogether so there's definitely a growing concern among students with regards to that. I mean, Damien, I suppose it's a good time to bring the GPHC because that's something that you've identified previously in some kind of uh, you know, research you've been conducting about uh, pre-reg placements. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what the GPHC's <coughs> found and if it's going to be acting on that? <coughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the first observation uh, to make is that, is that we're a comparatively young regulator and w- one of the things that we've started to do is collect evidence and also share it. So the stage we're at at the moment is, is, is analysing what we've found, seeing if there are trends and themes before we then work out what it is we need to do. So we have probably two or three years now of, re- of, of reliable data. And so I th- um, uh, because we've shared everything, I think everybody knows broadly speaking what the themes are. But in terms of the registration 
assessment pass rate, there's a higher rate for hospital uh, candidates than for community ones, higher rates in Scotland and Wales compared to England. And I think our, our next step is to kind of step back and, and analyse what that might mean. Because the problem with all education and training is it's multifactorial, so it's complicated. So you can't make a simple cause and effect uh, judgment about what's being seen, but clearly th there is a variation. Okay, um, so Noam and Jay, in a minute I want to move on to a first part, you know, our first poll was up to talk about, which is about um, kind of the role that universities provide, but I suppose while we're on the subject of the kind of divide between hospitals and pharmacies, is that something either of you have personally experienced or any feedback you've heard? Um, this is something that I, you know, we've experienced for a while. Um, I've been attending the GPHC managers meetings for nearly 10 years now. Um, these issues were raised in the past, and it's nice to see that the GPHC are now surveying trainees, getting their views, and really getting the trainee voice heard, because that's what we wanted. Um, and I know that the RPS are looking at that as well, and that was part of forming the RPS Pre-Reg Advisory Board, where we're discussing how to deal with training sites where trainees are not being supported. Um, as a training provider, uh, we, you know, we have committed to supporting the RPS um, in, in those, managing those standards. But I feel that you know, quicker action needs to be taken to manage those training sites where uh, bad training is being delivered. Um, in terms of Zuhaib's comment about the quality of training between community and hospital, um, obviously there is a variation. I, I don't think uh, the pass rate reflects that hospital um, is better than community. Um, I think that, as Damien said, there is a number of factors. Uh, we, we like to support trainees in terms of um, their start of their, and when they finish university till they qualify. And a lot of universities are doing that as well in terms of supporting their trainees. Okay. Um, yeah, to be honest, um, going along the same lines, um, there's clearly a fear amongst students whilst they're going through their pre-reg because of this they, they almost feel as if um, the place that they're having their training isn't as good as it could be. And that's not always um, down to one factor. There's loads of things that impact on it. You, right from the beginning when you start university to, through your pre-reg, there's loads of things that will play a role in it. Um, I think the picture is starting to be built now that it isn't one person to blame or one sector to be blamed. I think everyone needs to take responsibility to kind of move forward and make pharmacy what it should be. Okay, I mean, so picking one factor, you said there's no, no, there's no particular factor to blame. Yeah. I mean, one area we identified that we noticed some people thought could aid people's um, pre-reg performance was universities providing greater support <coughs> um, to their students doing their pre-reg year. And a poll we ran found that almost half, 47%, said they, um, they did think you needed to provide greater support as this would increase chances of passing the pre-reg exam. Interestingly, uh, the, the, the other um, feedback was uh, kind of split evenly between those who thought the owners should be on students to pass exam themselves and those who thought pre-reg tutors had a role to play to ensure their students pass. I mean, I wondered, first of all, to go to you, Zohib, and say, like, um, you know, do you feel that universities do need to provide greater role to support pre-reg students? To be honest, the final year of university, they did a lot with regards to clinical scenarios, calculations, and things like that to gear you up for the pre-reg year. But since then, there's been very little contact from the university itself. There's been a few emails here and there. But to be honest, I think I've graduated now. I've left that part <coughs> of my life behind me. I'm focused on the future. I've got a great training provider who's providing me with the tools necessary to pass the pre-reg training year. So 
I'm not too sure if I feel that universities need to be more involved in the pre training year because they've done their part. I've got my M-Farm degree. I think I need to move on from that now. Possibly. So it sounds like you're more in the camp of it's a combination of kind of, you know, being self-motivated but also having that tutor there to support you. Of course, you. of course, yes. Yeah. It's all about having a great positive tutor. You have to have that positivity. And the students themselves, they need to be willing to learn, mm. essentially. There's, it's not going to get handed to you on a plate, essentially. So, like, Jay Zohib sounds like the ideal student there. I mean, do you have any feedback from people who maybe struggle slightly more and would, would like that support from unis, or is that a fair assessment of what most students feel? Um, I think it's divided, definitely, because you have students out there who are, like Zohib, he, he's kind of very grounded. He kind of knows what direction he wants to go in, what he needs to focus on, what he needs to do to get the job done. Um, Whereas you have other students who might be a bit more fearful, a bit more careful about what they want to do. They might need a bit more support, a bit more direction. Um, I think when you do go to university, you do have that extra bit of support because it's such a controlled structure that they have. Um, when you enter your pre-reg, you are kind of, the responsibility is pushed back on you. Um, so that can be unnerving for students and I think that can be a challenge for them. Uh, definitely makes it difficult. That's why I think there is a gap that needs to be bridged, not to literally hold their hand and walk them through the exam, but definitely to maybe give them a bit more guidance. That does lie with the student, the tutor, and any training providers that are out there. Okay, um, yeah, I'd pass on the same question over to you. Um, you know, as a training provider, we uh, provide full support for pre-race trainees, and it's, we take it as our responsibility to do that. But as well as that, um, students who have made lifetime investments uh, with the universities um, do feel that they, there is a commitment from the university towards helping them reach the finish line. And for that reason, we're working with King's College London because um, we are working with academics there who really care about the end result, you know, the... the pharmacist being produced at the end, um, are they being trained well? So we recently ran an event at King's College London um, for um, quality of tutoring, so they're helping tutors in their roles, as well as um, I know that King's College London run training events for their trainees, so they invite them back for training sessions. And I think if all universities took that um, responsibility towards their students, we would end up with you know, a better calibre of students. And I think some already do um, invite their trainees back for one or two study days. But I think if it's done on a sort of a larger scale where uh, universities have more uh, input, um, trainees would really appreciate that. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned King's College London because we spoke to Jane Lawrence, who's a professor of biophysical pharmacy. Um, pharmaceutics uh, there earlier this week and she was saying that um you know as you said that they do provide some support but um, to do it at a larger scale you know universities do need some funding to do that yep. so I guess it's a good time <coughs> to kind of ask you Damon I mean I don't know if the GBC already has a view on this and whether it thinks that there does need to be some kind of incentive for universities to provide greater support well I mean I, I, mean, I think if you look at the answer to your poll the fact that uh, the responses are mixed I think reflects probably the truth of the matter because if you're a university of course you want to to know how well your graduates are doing but equally it's unreasonable to, to make a university run something that it's not funded for and at the moment there's the f there is the MPharm a degree followed by pre-registration it's not on the whole integrated and you have to be fair to 
universities, if they are not funded for something, then it's often quite hard for them to actually do it. But on the other hand, as we've heard, quite a few universities do that because they're interested uh, and they care about the, the fate of their students after they leave. So my answer is mixed and I think that's because it reflects a question about which there are mixed views. Mm. I mean, I suppose, uh, we'll keep on coming back to this kind of June exam rate. I wondered as you've been, Jupiter has been shifting through some kind of data trying to get to the bottom of whether this is an anomaly or might happen again. Do you think that potentially uh, the amount of university support did affect that low uh, June exam result this year? Um, well, I think the wider context is that the exam is now sat by probably twice as many students as it used to be. And I think what you've got to consider is the effect of, of doubling the number of students on, on, on one indicator, which is an examination pass rate. And um, in order to understand that, you'll have to go back and look at the individual student profiles and so on and so forth. So uh, that's where we are at the moment. We've spotted that there has been a change, but also we've spotted it uh, that there's also been a significant change in the number of students. So it's not entirely unsurprising that, th that there has been a change. Uh, so I think you know, our next step is, is, is understanding the nuts and bolts of that, mm. uh, of that in uh, so far as uh, we can. Well, I suppose one kind of element of that is this kind of thorny issue of whether the quality of students uh, overall has kind of um, you know, been lowered at all over time. I mean, a poll we run back in August showed that over two-thirds two of our readers thought that they had noticed a drop in the average level of skills and the knowledge of pre-registration students over the past five years. So kind of, so if we go back to you as a current pre-registration yeah. student, I mean, maybe quite hard for you to personally compare it, but I mean, do yeah. you, have you ever got a sense in your pre-registration year that maybe the standard has slipped or that some people view you as you know, uh, people in your year as maybe not having the same skills they might have done five years ago? No, not at all. If anything, I would think that people who are graduating now are more geared towards the pharmacy environment of today. We're taught more clinical skills, we're better at dealing with patients, things like that. But I know you've mentioned this before, but I feel that it's an issue that is coming from further up. So because entry standards are getting lower, more pharmacy schools are opening up, there's a great uh, mixture of students who are coming out of pharmacy schools who are not possibly of the same caliber. I don't want to say anything like that, but maybe I feel that in with that respect, there might be an issue, but I don't think that there's a, been a major drop in the teaching standard, mm -hmm. if anything. Well, we'll move on to like student numbers in a minute, so uh, which you know I think we all have strong views on as one of the key points here. Just just sticking with the quality for a second because it'd be good to hear um, both your views. If you guys want to you know wade in here at all. Um, well, I've only been qualified for two years now, so I still remember my exam and still uni life. Um, I don't think the calibre of student that is produced is any worse at all, um, but I think definitely. When you go through university, um, one thing that's always struck with me, and I kind of remember it when I went for uni, um, one of my lecturers turned around to me and said, if you aim for 40%, which is the minimum pass mark for certain modules, um, would you be happy going into a pharmacy when the prescription's only 40% ripe? Um, and the blunt answer is no, you wouldn't be. But, and I think when you go for uni life and you have such a low pass mark, well, minimum pass mark, no one aims for that, but if you are getting that, and then you come to your pre-registration exam where you're expected to get a lot higher, 
um, it, it's a big change for certain people. If you've always been at the top end, maybe you're more prepared for it. Obviously, I'm not saying that someone that got a lower grade at university is going to not perform when they do their pre-registration because it's all down to the student. If they come out of university and they say, I'm going to give this everything, then they can most definitely do that. But I think you're more geared towards it if you have that mentality from day one. Okay, um, thanks Jay. And Noma, do you have anything to kind of add there? Uh, well, in my role, um, we, you know, it's nice that I have the opportunity to speak to trainees that come from nearly all the different universities. And we also are in touch up with their employers. So um, hopefully I'll give a, a view of the trainee voice. Mm. Um, so tr in terms of when we see different trainees from different universities, they express um, you know, in our classes the difference in terms of what they've experienced during their university degrees. I myself have seen variation in calibre and we see that in the result, results of tests throughout the year and you know, how they work during classes. In terms of the employers, um, we also get feedback that the, sometimes the skills um, and the behaviours of pharmacists are not what they were expecting. So I think there is a bit of a mismatch between what trainees are expecting when they finish university and what employ employers are receiving. So universities are gearing um, students up to deliver on those future roles and when they start working um, they don't get that and they feel disappointed. So I think there is um, a bit of disappointment in terms of workforce planning, um, in terms of that not meeting the requirements at the moment. So is there, I mean, I don't know if anyone here has got an idea of what the kind of a solution for that to do. Is it, is it that unis need to be more in tune with employers or employers need closer connections with the universities themselves? Or is it just, are we necessarily going to have these kind of ambitious, frustrated pre-registers who are coming out and they can't do everything they want straight away and be thrown into the thick of it? Personally, I think it, it's all about having that clinical experience from as early on in your uni life as possible. Um, if, you, if a person was to be exposed to that day-to-day -day pharmacy environment, whether it's in the hospital, whether it's in community industry, wherever it is, it's kind of ingrained into them. It becomes second nature to them. They know how to apply the knowledge that they're learning at university more readily in, in the actual pharmacy environment that they're going to be working in for the rest of their lives. And so um, I think it's about adapting how the courses run, to be honest, and the more clinical exposure they can get with actual patients, the better. I mean, Damien, I don't know if you had a view on that, you know, this kind of need for clinical exposure, like maybe the lack of it in some courses is, is causing these kind of fluctuations in quality. Is that something you guys are looking at? Well, I mean, um, looking at the standards that we operate at the moment, there's a very clear emphasis on integration. And the reason for that is if you learn something, you want to learn it because it'll be of use to you. And uh, we have noticed that as the schools have uh, re-engineered their M-Farm, there's been much more of an emphasis on integration. And when we visit, the students do kind of mention that because it makes the M-Farm feel l like practice more, more and more so than it used to. So, so in that respect, I think things are heading in the right direction. The question that then follows is what the integration could or should be between the M-Farm and the year of pre-registration training, because that would be uh, moving it on still further. Now, that hasn't happened yet, but it has been discussed in the past. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it sounds like some there is some good work going there and some kind of are quite exemplary unis. Does, 
does, is this a role for the regulator that we need to kind of put the emphasis on this? Because it obviously isn't working everywhere, nor not everyone's kind of got the memo yet, and they're not, you know, not kind of um, bridging this gap between the need for like clinical skills and also this need for employers to be more in tune, or universities more in tune to what employers are actually going to be offering students when they graduate. I mean, do you have something to do there yourself? Well, uh, I mean, I suppose um, everybody involved has a role, and our role is to make sure that the standards are right. So uh, I think, as some of you will know, uh, next year and the year after that, we will be looking at the education standards for pharmacists. And if there's a call for more clinical work and for greater integration, then we'll have to listen to that and see what that looks like as a standard. But if, if that is the general view, then we need to hear that very clearly. So next year and the year after, there will be sort of ample opportunity for everybody to feed in. But we do need everybody to feed in, because unless we know what the views are, it's hard to justify a change in the standards. But as I say, from a regulatory perspective, everything that we uh, come up with must be expressed as a standard, because that's just what we do. Well, I mean, one subject of you know me suggesting what else a GPHC could do. One thing it has already done is, um, you know, quite clearly kind of criticised the University of Central Lancashire when it viewed that it was letting in a kind of uh, unnecessarily like large number of students who, through clearing, you know, thought in that case it had kind of brought down a, the quality of students. I wondered, first of all, does the GPHC think that this is a wider problem? Is this something that could be contributing to these kind of fluctuating quality in some cases? Too many students being brought in to fill numbers on courses. Well, I suppose the way that we look at that issue is through accreditation, and that happens on a cyclical basis. So this year we will be visiting some schools of pharmacy, as we will every year. And that's the opportunity that we have to look at things like entry profiles and enter into a discussion with the universities about the implications of that. So I don't think it's right for me to make overarching statements, because uh, each school is looked at individually and judged against our standards as a school. So that, th that is what we will be doing every time we visit. I think the context of the last year or so is that everybody's become much more enlivened uh, to those kinds of issues because there's been a much wider debate, which I think schools will be aware of, and is the kind of thing that we will inevitably feed into our discussions when we visit them. I mean, I don't know, I mean, I'm thinking specifically here of Noma and Jay, but is that if you want to add in, if you were kind of had any sense that there was, you know, maybe this kind of non-pharmaceutical need to get, you know, a certain number of students to pack them into a course, and this may be accounting to maybe these kind of, the mixed views we're getting of some universities having, like, lower standards, or maybe some students maybe kind of getting, slipping through the net, as it were, you know, due to this need to kind of fill spaces. I mean, has anyone kind of got any thoughts on that? I'll be honest, I think universities see it as a big cash cow. Like, when I started university in my year, I think there was near enough 300 students no. in my year. And graduating, I think half the year graduated. So that kind of, put, kind of puts it into perspective that, I don't know, maybe spaces are just trying to be filled, but who knows? I mean, uh, no more, I kind of heard you there. Kind of nod and acknowledgement, but you. Um, do you have any thoughts on well it? Well, I think um, we need to focus on making sure that pharmacy remains attractive to, rec you know, to... Um, allow students with t you know top talent so that we can end up with uh, pharmacists who actually want to do pharmacy and it doesn't mean that because there wasn't a student cap universities should um, be um, you know lowering their standards and taking on students with lower uh, pass marks I don't have experience of that happening with universities so I can't uh, comment on that but in terms of the finish line where trainees 
reach the finish line. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think there should be uh, better w workforce planning, uh, better strategic leadership and management from our, you know, our professional body and our regulator to ma make sure that the st standards remain high and are met. And where quality um, of teaching or where quality of previous training sites as well um, is shown not to be meeting the standards, where we actually take action because a lot has, has been said about um, quality of training, um, but I don't think action is being taken to actually resolve that. So, for example, the RPS has set out a vision for the pharmacy workforce, which we fully support, um, and we'd like to sort of support the RPS in, in supporting newly qualified pharmacists um, get into those roles. But at the moment, um, the number of roles that exist is, you know, it's not meeting the demands of the supply, so that's the issue. Okay, I mean, that's perfect timing there, because you're talking about there not being enough roles the number of students, which kind of leads me nicely into um, this kind of elephant in the room, which is the, the potential surplus of students, whether we are producing too many pharmacy graduates to the roles involved. You know, that's often a concern that's been mentioned before, and um, you know, only you know, last year did the government reject a cap on student numbers, just despite this you know, kind of having overwhelming support from the consultation it launched. And in fact, a poll that, reader poll that we um, ran uh, last month showed that 88% were in uh, support of um, the number of places on pharmacy courses being uh, restricted, which has you know, far exceeded suggestions the number of pre-registration pre places being restricted. Um, so I wondered what, uh, first of all, I guess, Damien, the GPHC's view on this need for student cap. I mean, is this the problem that we just have this kind of, there's only going to become more and more students getting out there, you know, squabbling for less and less places. This might have knock-on effects at universities, but also for employers who are just going to be shifting through, picking, you know, it can be quite de demotivating if you come out and already worry if there's a pre-reg placement or a job at the end of it after all that money's been spent. I mean, I think the, the main issue that we have at the moment is that we don't know a lot of the answers to lots of those questions at the moment. I think we can say that things are changing, but to actually be able to then break that down and state, and therefore there should be a student numbers cap, is a step too far because we actually don't know if that is the case or not. Um, I think the, the, the underlying issue is whether alignment and management is the better strategy, because I think that's, that's the overarching issue, and that's a matter for the countries of uh, GB. So it's a matter for England and a matter for, uh, for Scotland and a matter for Wales, because there's got to be collective agreement on that, because at the moment, of course, um, MFARM student numbers are not restricted because universities set their own student number targets and there is no means of influencing that. So, so universities would have to be part of the conversation if you wanted to restrict student um, numbers because they and they alone have the right to actually set what their numbers are. So, as I say, I think what sits in the background is the degree to which there's an appetite in the countries for managing the system as a whole. I think, I, and I think that's the issue that needs to be looked at. Well, I mean, we, you know, bringing back in uh, Professor Jane Lawrence, and I mean, she said she believed that, you know, schools of, most schools of pharmacy think you should have a free, a free market, and eventually that will limit, you know, the kind of the number of students you have, because that you know, schools will close down if they don't produce good graduates. But I mean, that kind of view does, does seem to be the view that most universities have. But when you've got 88% of you know, readers saying you should restrict numbers, and universities, if making a good income out of it, I mean, is there a bit of a clash where even if they did start restricting numbers, it's going to be too little, too late, and you're going to have this huge surplus? I mean, first of all, yeah. I'll definitely come to the rest of you guys. I guess one more question to GPHC sure. there is in, are unis ever going to get on board with it while there's still a chance to kind of change? That is genuinely a, a, 
matter for them. I think the, the, the issue that we, we don't understand is how rational or how irrational the market is because students make choices at various moments in their career. They make a choice when they decide to study pharmacy and where they study it and they make another choice when they think about pre-registration training or not. And what we don't know at the moment is what the market will bear because there are also other factors here as well. There are fees, there's the availability of pre-registration places and we don't know as of now where the market will shake down. Unfortunately the only way of knowing that is waiting and seeing. So there is a degree of uncertainty which I think we recognise but, but we can only act on the facts and we don't have enough facts yet to actually know how it'll end up in three, four, five, six years from now. I mean, I suppose I guess that kind of makes sense from a regulatory point of view, but from people in the ground, either as a student or working with students, I mean, uh, what do you think about that answer? And more generally, what do you think about the issue of is there a surplus of students? I'll be honest, I think first-year students who are just starting university, they're sold the glamorous lifestyle of pharmacy. They, they think it still is what it was, but the situation on the ground is completely different. And I don't think they'll realise until they finish the, their period year, until they, they leave that security of their period year, how bad life is for a pharmacist. I mean, I know particularly in Birmingham, I've heard of locums earning anything as low as £12 an hour, wow. which, you know, I'd rather stack shelves mm. than get paid £12 an hour and put my registration on the line every day. So students aren't aware how bad it really is. Well, as a, as a recent student, I mean, who's selling you that dream? Is that, is that the university? And, and maybe who should be stepping in and giving people a reality check? Again, is that just uni, down to unis? Or? I was sold that dream just from people that I know. Mm. You know, pharmacists are doing really well. You should become a pharmacist. And for me, it was, I always had a passion for science, maths and business. So it made sense for me to become a pharmacist until I realised how bad it really is. But I guess pharmacy is evolving now. We're at sort of like a tipping point where new roles are emerging. So I guess it's just a matter of embracing change. But I think students need to be told what the reality of the situation is. Jay, no, yeah. I mean, there's a few different issues there. There's one, is there a certain, you know, I want to hear your views on whether there's a surplus, but also if, if so, should be people be warning, you know, disillusioning pharmacists? Do you guys play a role in that or should the universities be doing it? Um, as a pharmacist, I personally feel that there is a surplus. Um, and I think the problem is that um, when you are, uh, are considering going to university, you go to a pharmacist, you go to your friends, your peers, and you ask them what do you think of this career option, and they give you that snapshot, a snapshot of that moment, but they don't realise that it's going to be five years down the line by the time they're qualified and they're that professional. And so what's happened is you know, people say, yeah, it's great, but it's great right now. Um, you, go, you go down the line five years and suddenly the game's changed because that's how rapidly healthcare is changing. Um, and I think, yes, there, there are stuff being done now to kind of try and manage this surplus with you know, pharmacists going into GP practices, stuff like that, which is excellent news. But at the same time, is it moving fast enough to kind of manage it quick enough? Because even if we started to restrict numbers now somehow, it, it's going to be restricted five years down the line, not right now. So you need to consider whether restricting right now is going to be the way forward or is it going to be creating more jobs for those people that come out four or five years down the line. And who do you think should be leading on creating those new jobs? 
Um, I think it's a responsibility of, well, the profession needs to, as a whole, show itself in terms of its abilities. So stuff like flu vaccination, I mean, go a few years back and pharmacists doing it was never heard of. And suddenly, you know, we're being considered as the line, um, front line for this. Um, obviously, there's always going to be challenges because people that originally provide these services don't want to give them up, which rightly so, they've been doing it for years. But I think we need to show the wider healthcare profession that what pharmacists can do and what difference we can really make. Um, and only by doing that, we'll be able to really stamp ourselves in, in the world today. Right. Um, I'd like to add that the, the, the point that Zahid mentioned about it's about embracing change. I think that sums it up really because pharmacy is going through a period of you know, huge change and transformation. And with that, there's a lot of opportunity and excitement. Um, and it's important that we embrace that. So as well as us as you know, uh, people who are involved in training up uh, newly qualified pharmacists, I think trainees themselves, if they are told about this and involved um, in this change, they'll be better equipped to actually you know, move between the different sectors, for example, and meet the future roles that they're expected to do. So in terms of what we've been hearing from students who were disappointed about their um, future career, we actually ran a conference just for that reason, to actually you know, build um, the, the student expectation of their careers. And they really appreciated being told about how they can move between the different sectors, the importance of developing their leadership and management um, skills as well. So things like that, you know, innovative solutions that uh, training providers um, and pharmacists can do to support the younger profession can all help towards this integration that uh, the profession is calling for. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we've also got some people on Twitter mentioning things, you know, as varied as kind of coding as, and like use, use of data as other kind of skills that pharmacists should use, you know, that, that would make them more widely employable in hospitals and, you know, other sector. Um, you know, in Scotland, they're already trying to train up every uh, pharmacist with prescribing skills, you know, and build that into the education process. I know the GPHC has also mentioned in its strategy document a plan to bring in um, prescribing skills early on and, you know, te you're testing the water with that. Um, interestingly, in the poll, only 6% said, you know, you shouldn't restrict student numbers. Instead, you use that growing number of students for roles such as practice pharmacists, you know, GP surgeries or independent prescribers. I mean, we've got NHS England trying to create new roles for pharmacists in GP surgeries. And that at the time when they announced it was, you know, meant as a solution to the quote unquote the army of you know, extra pharmacists. But if, you know, when we're polling readers, there's a kickback that they don't see that solution. They just want to cut off at the cap. I mean, is there an issue here that people ultimately, you know, just want there to be less pharmacists and kind of still have the role they have rather than embrace the, you know, should we be looking at it more positively? I mean, you're kind of hinting at that, Jay, earlier. Um, I, I think what it is, is that when you are choosing a profession, you kind of have this image in your head about what the profession is. Um, and you kind of have two types of people. You have the type of people who are ready to adapt continuously and, you know, are willing to change according to what the wider population requires. Um, and then you have the other side which kind of get into it because pharmacy is XYZ and I want to stick to XYZ. So why, when I've got through it all, I've qualified, I'm working now, should I give up my spot because of the competition that's coming through the door? So um, I think it's more a culture change that is kind of just struggling to happen. And that's partly because of people's just stubbornness, essentially. And I think the sooner that the 
everyone in the profession kind of grasps that things are going to change, whether we really want them to or not. Um, that's when we're going to start moving forward. I mean, Zohib, as a student, I mean, I th it's all very well when you can look back down on it and go, well, people have got to look, you know, people have got to expand their horizons and, you know, broaden them, and you can't assume that just because you've got a good pre enterprise and you've done really well, you know, you kind of got it for life. I mean, but how do students on the ground actually feel like that? Because you're always suddenly going to go from being the one scrabbling for that role to when you finally get it, are you willing to, you know, accept that I'm going to have to learn all these extra skills that my pre reg and uni didn't even mention just to, because it's not enough roles? You know, when I when you do your course, you're going in to do to work in a community pharmacy and do a set role. You think you understand it? Do you to have to accept you've got to learn some more skills to be employed? To be honest, at uni, they did try and teach us them extra skills. They it was always a there was never a question that you know you're just going to be stuck in the dispensary. They ingrained it into our heads that the pharmacy game is changing. Pharmacists are not just stuck in dispensaries checking off boxes anymore. Your frontline healthcare workers, you're out there dealing with patients. And my course, course was very much geared towards that. So I think the elder generation of pharmacists who have been doing it for 30, 40 years, you know, they're used to just staying in a dispensary, checking off boxes, whatnot. I think that game is changing altogether now. So pharmacists are more patient oriented and my course complete, wholeheartedly made us aware of that and geared us up to deal with situations like that. And we have kind of been making it out as if it's, you know, the university's job to change, to, to kind of... Uh um, essentially like upskill its pharmacists and kind of show them new horizons. But I mean, we've got uh, Anthony Cox on Twitter, who's Deputy Head of Pharmacy at the University of Birmingham, who's saying, you know, it's as much about redesigning pre-reg courses and, and kind of the support for pre-regs. That's also the stage where you should be doing it. So, you know, employers and pre-reg tutors have a role. So I don't know if um, No More Jay, you had, you had any thoughts about whether it's as much responsibility of, you know, post-uni as it is, you know, the course academic tutors. Well, I, I think that uh, if universities work more closely with employers, then we can actually do that because um, if we improve the workplace-based uh, learning and get more of that, especially if we go towards a five-year MFARM degree, then that means students will get that experience early on to be able to fit into those roles earlier on. So I think um, there's a lot that can be done in terms of improving that. Okay. Is that the kind of feedback you give off? You give back to like individual tutors, or does it need to be kind of top down? And you know, there needs to be something to have like a framework to work with, if you like. I, I think you know, some universities are starting to do that, and um, there are lots of innovative projects going on where they're trying to work more closely with employers. Um, so, for example, um, we're working closely with Kings um, to try and get more workplace-based uh, training um, that's more sort of clinically appropriate for the standards that we're expecting. Um, and so if universities work with training providers who are experienced at doing that or delivering that kind of training, especially, you know, pre-reg tutor training, um, then we will achieve higher standards overall. Great. And yeah. yeah, Jay, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I mean, partly why um, we created Team Pre-reg anyway was literally just us trying to answer the question of what we would want when we're pre-reg students. And so we there's always going to be stuff that a student wants that they don't have handed to them on a plate. And so there, there's always room for um, other people to kind of provide that extra bit of support for them. Um, obviously, it's not always down to just the university. I think um, it's important that um, the training providers, the support providers provide that extra bit of guidance about maybe something that you'll learn during your pre-reg, whether it's in while you're in the pharmacy, while you're in hospital, something that you need to pay attention to learn throughout the year that's going to really pay dividends when you actually start 
practicing, whether that is something as simple as being able to recognize an infection or something like that, or going to, on a particular course throughout the year, which will play, again be useful when you do qualify. And I think if you do have it at that stage of learning, it kind of becomes second nature when it comes to actually actioning it. So you feel as if, well, I've learned it, this, why should I be scared about practicing it now? So I think it's all about implementation during your training. Well, I suppose that's kind of looking forward, but you know, coming back to, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the pretty worrying June exam results and the risk that you know, as well as we're talking about how to improve the situation, it looks like, you know, you could look at that result and, and argue that you know the situation is deteriorating to a extent. Um, we were talking about the increasing number of students, and I wondered, uh, again, if we could go back to you, Damon, if you thought there was any kind of correlation between increasing numbers of students and the low June pass rate, or is that something that we're still kind of being investigated? Um, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier on that this is pretty much multifactorial stuff. Mm. So um, I think you can't really say just because there are more uh, students in the system, it's inevitable that the rate lowers. I think what you do need to do is, is to go back and look at the profiles of some of the students in very much more, more depth. Then you start uh, to get more of, a, of an understanding of, of what might have gone on. But even then, you know, you're looking at the uh, you're looking at the cumulative effect of five years of education and training at university in pre-registration, the individual's own ability, and then uh, trying to make sense of that in terms of one kind of number, which is um, a pretty hard thing to do. So uh, we've been reviewing some of the profiles of some of the students to help us better understand that, but. Um, We've also been responding to uh, university requests uh, for, for, for further information so they can go and look at how well their students did from their perspective. So I think the message is it's a work in progress. I mean, I, sp I, I suppose the, the June exam did look like a bit of an uh, anomaly in one, in one sense. So maybe, you know, is there an argument to do with it was partly to do with the changing exam? You know, because, for example, we you know, spoke to... Um, Day Lewis last week, who said, you know, one of the reasons that they thought perhaps uh, some of their pre-read students had failed was because they'd been slightly complacent and not realised how hard the exam would be. So, kind of, obviously, the pre-read, um, the tutors have a responsibility there, but also maybe the people just weren't prepared for this exam. I mean, was it something to do with? Wasn't was the exam too hard that was set? Or um, I don't think that it was because uh, one of the things that we always look at afterwards is the relative hardness of the exam, which is why we can also adjust the pass mark, which we have done o over the years. So even if an exam is slightly harder one year, you mitigate that by, by adjusting the, the pass mark. Um, as to whether students may or may not have felt unprepared, that could be a factor. And, and if you look at the September pass rate and look at how many of the candidates passed it second time round, that was actually fairly high. So it might be the case that they were unprepared. But of course, without actually asking them, mm. we can't say. Well, maybe we've got some other people in the room who we could ask. I mean, in terms of, I mean, we've, we've come talking about like the best practice for pre-reg tutors to, like I said, you know, broaden the horizons and you know, really help their students. But do you think there was a sense that, uh, does anyone have any you know, thoughts on whether the, maybe the reason there was quite a low, you know, such a low pass rate this year, you know, 74% is essentially because a lot of tutors just kind of have got in the habit of just kind of do you know they, they get the student along they just kind of breeze over them they vaguely oversee them they send them off the exam students everything fine and then when you get maybe the exam shifts or changes quite a lot and students are just unprepared for it 
I'll be honest, a lot of my friends that I've spoken to who are also doing their pre-reg here, they, they're basically just there as dispensers. They're just there checking off boxes and the only real training that they get is from their training providers, if they're lucky to be on a training course. So, and you know, I work in a small independent community pharmacy. I'm not exposed to the same level of clinical knowledge that my hospital peers are as well. So everything that I've learned clinically, I've either learned from university or off my own back. It's just a case where I'm not exposed to those scenarios. So some would argue that the exam itself is not representative of a pharmacist's greater role, but a pharmacist's role can vary so greatly as well. So, I mean, Noam and Jay, do you really feel like you're having to fill a void that's you know, been left by quite a few you know, pre-reg tutors just not putting the effort in themselves? Um, going through the motions, I suppose? As a support provider, we have had students approach us who do feel as if they don't get enough guidance from their tutor, but at the same time, you, it's a spectrum. So you do get some pre-reg um, students that come along and um, feel their, their tutor provides them with all the support and more. And so you do get a wide variation out there um, when it comes to tutors. Um, at the same time, it's not always the tutor's responsibility, like I mentioned before. The student has to take on the responsibility that they are going to be a professional. And so it, it's, it's about, okay, if the tutor isn't being provided, uh, providing them the right stuff, um, they need to be able to voice their concern to someone, um, rightly so, but at the same time, they need to kind of act as well and take it on themselves to find the right sources out because there is stuff out there that can support them. Okay, Damon, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just uh, really, I want to remind everybody that, that we have made changes to the exam over the last few years, and we've advertised what those are uh, using increasing amounts of clinical scenarios and so on, but the major change is next year, and we've advertised that well in advance. All of the information is on the website in the new revamped pre-registration manual, so if anybody is a trainee or a tutor, they really do need to go there, make sure they're very familiar with the changes, uh, because if they're caught unawares, then they might struggle next year. So it'll be time well spent going on the website, looking at the manual, making sure you're very clear about what will be expected of you. Yeah, no, man, just going back to you know, the, the kind of like shortfall, perhaps in some, you know, pre-reg tutors maybe not, not even realising that, you know, the kind of the level of support that maybe they do have to provide to make sure that, you know, their students are ready to take the exam. I mean, is that something you dealt with much? And do you have much advice to students who are in that position where they don't feel they're getting the support they need? Well, we as a training provider try and work closely with the GPHC to make sure that our training plans um, are aligned to the GPHC framework. So we are aware of the changes um, and as much as possible we try and prepare those trainees on the training programs with everything they need to pass this exam. But obviously they are spending 52 weeks in their training sites and therefore we work in partnership with their tutors as well to make sure we provide them with feedback about their trainee performance. If there are any shortfalls, if we feel that a trainee is not performing well on tests we run throughout the year, we would expect the tutors to take part in, in supporting them in, in that. But as you've heard from Zuhaib, only, you know, if some trainees don't get sent on training programs. And I think for now, you know, at this stage, this should be a, requi a requirement. But going back to um, tutor training, for example, at the moment, 
that's not even a compulsory requirement. So we ran last summer five tutor conferences, and they were all free of charge, so they, the tutors could attend them, and we ran them throughout the UK. And yet, um, we feel that we do have to sort of really encourage tutors to attend, uh, because there is no um, co you know, compulsory reason for them to attend. So that's why I think with the changes to pre training now, and as we move to, if we, if we are moving towards a five-year integrated degree, if this has an impact on the quality of tutoring, I think that's a good thing, um, especially in terms of training sites um, being managed um, and, and with quality assurance being um, involved in the process. Um, well, I suppose kind of just going back to the uh, the issue of the surplus of students and you know sticking with the topic of kind of pre uh, the pre-reg year. I mean, one of the more controversial suggestions made recently was by England's chief pharmaceutical officer Keith Ridge, who suggested, I mean that um, they, NHS England was looking towards uh, having all pre-reg placements allocated centrally as the system already exists in Scotland. Um, this would mean that anyone who maybe wasn't able to get a, a placement through this system might ultimately uh, have to pay for it themselves, potentially, he kind of uh, speculated. Um, we kind of polled readers on that, and I suppose not unsurprisingly from my point of view, 84% disagreed with the idea that pre-regs should ever have to pay for their placement. Um, now, this is someone a kind of, uh, you know, very high up in kind of, well, essentially, you know, the government, very high up in NHS England, you know, espousing a view that could ultimately mean that, you know, students like, so, you know, so here, in a few years' time, would be, might be scrabbling around to, to get some money together to ensure they can get that vital placement. Damien, I, I haven't heard the GPHC's view on this yet. I mean, is that something they support or giving consideration to? Um, well, we don't have anything uh, to do with uh, funding, um, so we don't really have a view on that. Um, I think the observation would be that uh, we would want to understand whether um, that's actually making the quality of pre-registration training worse or not, because that would be our uh, concern. But the only thing we know so far is that it might occur. And until we know more than that, we can't really make an observation. But as I say, we don't manage the funding of pre-reg, so that really is a matter for government. Okay, I mean, and Noma and Jay, I mean, we were saying that maybe the solution isn't to restrict numbers, it is to try and provide more opportunities for them, but this is Keith Ridge saying, you know, he's very much looking at a solution to CAPS, so maybe thinks he's doing this sector a favour. Ultimately, you know, you are stuck with a limited number of pre-reg placements if you recruit centrally. I mean, what do you think the repercussions this could be if this goes ahead? Well, I think um, Keith Ridge is stating it as it is, you know, it's unsustainable to fund all these pre-reg training sites because of the points we mentioned about the oversupply. Um, and therefore, there's going to be a limited sort of amount of funding for those sites. So I think he's just stating what, what it's going to look like. Um, I, I think for me, the concern would be with the students who are in the process at the moment, when this is actually going to happen. I think uh, students who are at universities at the moment should be immune to this because they weren't aware of this, and students coming into the degrees should be uh, well informed by the universities that they may be paying for their training sites. Um, in terms of quality, again, um, um, I think um, when I attended the GPHC education conference, there was a lot of reference to the way that it's managed in Scotland and how there's a limited number of training sites. And I think they're trying to apply uh, a similar concept here in England. But I think there's a huge difference in, in the way this will work out because there are much bigger pre-reg uh, you know, numbers in London. For example, we as a training provider um, deliver training to 350 trainees. Um, and I know other training providers that deliver training to 
more than that. So in terms of how this would look like, um, I, I'm not, sh not sure. Well, I mean, I, I want to ask James Owe, but I suppose first, because interestingly you mentioned you know, Scotland again then and saying there's a lot of differences. I mean, does the GPHC, Damien, have any feedback on how the model works in Scotland, you know, just as a potential to view if this did happen over here? Do you know, does it seem to work over there? Well, um, I think really you need to ask the, the trainees that in Scotland and Scottish pharmacists, but I suppose the observation that I could make is that if you look at the registration and assessment pass rate, it's always higher in Scotland, and one of the factors uh, behind that may be that there is more uh, support because there's a unified scheme, but as I say, I think uh, you need to ask Scotland what they think of their scheme. I mean, I suppose maybe you've got a good point that there is a huge disparity between the number of pharmacists you know, in Scotland and across the UK. I mean, just look but at the number of trainees we have in London. I yeah. mean, I think if the, the attempt is to improve quality, uh, I'm all for that, because if, it, if we end up with a quality-assured uh, pre-rush training provision um, in, in, the, in England, then that's a good thing. But I think there needs to be a fair approach to managing that in terms of the, how many sites are community, how many are hospital, where the training is actually taking place, and which ones are funded. I mean, Nomi sounds quite positive there, Jay. Do you share that sentiment? Um, it's 50-50, to be honest, because it depends if the harsh reality is that there isn't enough funding out there to be able to continue where at the level that we're at, then clearly something needs to be done. Um, it's about how it's managed. It, you can say that, okay, we're going to have to restrict the number of pre-reg students, but at the same time, that wouldn't be fair on the students that are already along the pipeline. Um, like Noma was saying, it's important that it's well informed if it does happen and that it is managed fairly so that the students are aware and the people that are actually going to be in the profession are, again, aware of what implications it's going to have. Um, whether it would work or not, again, I, I think while it works for Scotland, we're a much bigger outfit in England and so I can't imagine it running as smoothly as it would in Scotland if it was literally just picked up and placed over. So how would you have felt if you'd had to apply through a central scheme with the risk that, you know, if you didn't get on to that limited number of places, you might be having to, uh, I'm guessing, like, take out a loan or something to do it, or just, you know, see if you had the funds together to persuade someone to I'll be honest, on. I'd be completely devastated. I mean, I was lucky enough to go through university where the fees were only £3,000 a year. But now they're £9,000 a year and people are doing pharmacy with the hope of becoming a pharmacist. You know, there's no question about it. At the end of my four-year course, I'll be £40,000 in debt. And no pharmacist is going to take you on free of charge or pay you a salary and train you. It's, it'll be very unlikely. So what happens to those students who haven't got a, a placement, who can't do their pre-reg year, and they've got an MPharm degree with no use, what happens to them? Do they have to then go back to university and do another degree? It's, it's completely unfair, and I think student numbers need to be linked with the number of pre-registration places, as suggested by the poll, which the ma vast majority of readers agreed with as well. It, it's the only way that really makes sense of moving forwards. But yeah, Damien, you kind of mentioned there, they so mentioned the kind of the devastation of if... I mean, he was talking about the devastation of not being able to get a placement, but I mean, as much as it is, when we looked at the high fail rate this year, I mean, the students who had, had paid all that money that he was referring to and couldn't become a pharmacist. I mean, does the sector have any kind of responsibility to these people if there's any element of, you know, if so many were failing, 
So that's, that's all that money each of those individuals has paid in with the you know, kind of aim of becoming a pharmacist. Does the GPHC, universities, uh, does anyone have responsibility to these students who are now, you know, they've tried to take their September exam rate, you know, they'll have one more chance, but... I mean, looking at it from our perspective, our responsibility is to set the standard, make sure that that standard is right, and then register the individuals who reach it. Uh, inevitably, that means that some don't. And, of course, it's troubling for those individuals, and we're acutely aware of that, because no one likes failing a student, and we certainly don't either. But um, having said that, I think we do have to accept some of, some of the harsher realities, and I think one of those is that um, there may be more students out there in the future unable to find a pre-registration place for whatever reason. But that's not to say that they can't do other things, because they do have an MPharm uh, uh, degree. It's just that what we don't understand at the moment is what the implications of the future are. So in that respect, we do have to wait and see uh, what emerges. I mean, Zohib, after hearing that uh, you know, only 74% of students did pass the exam. Are you apprehensive about taking it next June? I mean, do, and, and are your you know colleagues? Do you think this this is an extra kind of burden on, or do you just I'll think fine? Everyone I've spoken to is extremely worried, mm. especially because it's a complete new format of exam, and no one's really sure how it's going to play out, because it is meant to be more clinically geared. A lot of people are very very worried about the peerage exam. I mean, we'll just do a roundup in a second, but I suppose quickly on that note, it just made me think, Damien, will that be taken into account when you come to mark next June's exams? You know, when Zobin's friends are going to be taking this, they're not qu quite sure what to expect yet. You know, it's going to be a real new beast. Will you be bearing that in mind when these students come to take it? Uh, well, it's always on our mind, but I mean, uh, the exam is set by an, in by an independent uh, board, and their responsibility is to make sure that, th that the standard is maintained. I mean, I'm sure it'll be in there. Mind of course, mm. because uh, there are a lot of students involved, and they'll and they'll understand that those students are are understandably anxious. So I think our role in all of this is to re-emphasise that as much information as we can reasonably make available is out there. And I think the one thing that students must do is look at the question types very carefully, and and I, I also think not to uh, rely too much on older examinations or anything like that because the style has changed. So if you, so I think my advice is focus your efforts on what you know you'll, you ought to be expecting. So go and look at the website, look again, make sure that you understand exactly what you will be facing. Uh, but the exam is not out uh, to catch anybody. The exam is there to, to test practice. Okay, great. I mean, I suppose we've just about got time in the last few minutes to have a quick round-up. So I'd just ask each of you to give your thoughts on whether you do think pharmacy education needs any kind of overhaul. And if so, what do you think the biggest change that needs to happen is to kind of support students going, uh, uh, going forward? So, Damien, if we can just start with you. Well, I mean, you, you know that I work for the regulator, so our, uh, our input here is to make sure that the standards are right because if the standards are right, then it should set everybody up for practice. So just to remind everybody, we've got two years of uh, writing new standards so that we have the right ones in place moving forward, because once they're set, they'll be used for five or six years or so. So I think that's our end of the bargain. Okay, great. And um, Noma, does anything need to change? If so, what? 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think pharmacy is going through a period of change and transformation and as a trainee provider we'll do our best to equip our trainees for passing the registration exam firstly and secondly we'll do our best again to work with um, the regulator and the professional body to make sure that we can support um, students and trainees as much as possible and really to make sure that we listen to the student voice and not ignore um, the concerns they have. Okay great and Jay, is there anything that you think needs to change in pharmacy education now? Um, I think that, it, like Noma said, uh, things do need um, changing definitely, but I don't think um, any one sector is to blame. Uh, everyone needs to pull together um, universities, pre-reg providers, down to the student and um, anyone providing them with support. I think everyone needs to pull together and realise that things need to move forward and need to change. Okay, so kind of collaboration being the key there. Yeah. I mean, Zohib, as a, you know, as the only actual student here, you're kind yes. of really representing the next generation of yeah. pharmacists. Do you feel the one thing needs to change about how you've just been educated or how your pre reg is going? I think ultimately pharmacy is at a pivoting point, as I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of new job roles opening up. No one really knows where pharmacy is going. So it's hard to say that, you know, universities need to teach their students so-and-so when there's no real idea of where jobs are going to be in five, six years' time. So... I think the onus is partly on the students to make sure they're geared up to you know, embrace whatever change is coming and I think that's the key point here, just embrace change and no one knows where we're going to be in five years time so embracing change is the key here I think. Okay great, thanks for that. Um, I'm afraid that's our hours up so we'll have to wrap up there. I can I just thank all the panellists for taking part and taking time out of their busy schedules to share their thoughts with us this evening. Um, and also thank you, of course, to Activists, the webinar's generous supporter, for enabling this evening's event to take place. And finally, thank you to all of you, the listeners, for joining in. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as I have. Don't forget to look out for the full coverage in the magazine and on the website over the coming fortnight. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And good night. <laughs>